Thanks to the wonderful folks at Anchor.fm. Welcome, listeners, to Tom Reads Your Story. Join voice actor Tom Zania as he reads from past audiobooks and other spoken word projects. You writers may also be given the chance to have your newly written material, fiction or nonfiction, read to an audience. This show will get the words out. And now, here's the host of Tom Reads Your Story, voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. And thank you very much, Mr. Announcer, for that wonderful introduction. Really appreciate you coming over every week, sometimes twice a week, to introduce me to the crowd. So, welcome to you voice actors, writers of all kinds, and audiobook listeners. We are celebrating the spoken word, and this is Tom Reader's Story. Thanks for stopping by. I'm glad you're here. So today we've got a couple of good things. I I was uh, on Facebook and I noticed uh, a meme, very satirical, of it showed a, basically a fake book cover. Fake book cover of President You-Know-Who dressed in sort of country clothes, maybe something like you would see on uh, Downton Abbey or something like that. And he's sort of relaxing, uh, sitting down on the ground. And it's just, it's very funny. Uh, so there'd be a, a, a poem by him, <laughs> supposedly. And uh, later on, we will uh, hear another piece of, a, of an audio book. I'm not going to say which one it is yet because I haven't got there yet. Um, been a little busy today with some other things, so um, I'm gonna I'm gonna to play something that I will announce later. And first of all, we will get to uh, what I just talked about of our uh, our fearless leader, our fearful leader, uh, doing some of his own poetry, and. Uh, I'll be right back. With steak, you want to make every bite count. That's why we use A1 Steak Sauce. A1 brings out every single bite of steak, or even hamburger. Mmm, delicious. For me, there's only one steak sauce. A1. Because A1 has all the taste that makes every bite count. And so getting back to what I was saying now, basically, like I said, uh, very briefly uh, a moment ago, uh, I saw this meme. It was basically of Trump in, you know, uh, upper scale country uh, clothes, kind of a, you know, coat with a tie, uh, kind of a corduroy coat, you know, with a nice tie on. Uh, but it, the whole thing looked like something out of, uh, Downton Abbey or something in one of the, the exterior scenes of Downton Abbey, but, uh, it, it, maybe it was taken from that, but it was obviously a Photoshop, uh, uh, project of somebody's and, uh, it had these old English letters that said, uh, the poetry of Donald Trump. And it, it showed this, uh, bit of of 
speaking of him, uh, you know, he, the, he was talking about windmills, okay? He was talking about uh, how windmills are dangerous and, and they can give you cancer or, or something about the bird, they kill birds and all this kind of thing. And, and, and the whole, the, the point of the joke is, you know, to, to make it sound like he was some sort of poet by the way he, the way he, he spoke. And, um, I just love the idea. I just thought, you know, I'd like to read that, you know, as a piece of poetry, you know, seriously without getting too silly. And, um, I think you'll like it. Here it is. Windmills. I never understood wind, you know? I know windmills very much. I have studied it better than anybody else. It's very expensive. They are made in China and Germany mostly. Very few made here, almost none. But they are manufactured. Tremendous, if you are into this. Tremendous fumes. Gases are spewing into the atmosphere. You know? We have a world, right? So the world is tiny compared to the universe. So tremendous, tremendous amounts of fumes. And everything you talk about, the carbon footprint. Fumes are spewing into the air, right? Spewing. Whether it's in China, Germany, it's going into the air. It's our air, their air, everything, right? A windmill will kill many bald eagles. After a certain number, they make you turn the windmill off. That is true. By the way, they make you turn it off, and yet, if you killed one, they put you in jail. That is okay. You want to see a bird graveyard? You just go. Take a look. A bird graveyard. Go under a windmill someday. You'll see more birds than you've ever seen in your life. Donald Trump, 12-21-2019. Yes, there was some of the Trump poetry, <laughs> or uh, as the meme was trying to make itself out to be. Uh, I thought it was a fun little thing. I wanted to play it for you. So next up, what we have is... Something I had wanted to do for a very long time. And basically what it is, you know, what had happened was they had come out with a book um, about what it was like to be on Trump's staff and just how horrible things could get and how difficult uh, a person he was to work with. That's an understatement uh, from what I've heard. And uh, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to uh, look more into it. It, it was a book called fire and fury. And it was by Michael Wolf. And uh, I looked at this on, on Facebook and I thought, Oh man, I wish, you know, I wish I could get that, uh, uh, the narration job for that book, uh, as I'm sure it's very good. Well, some months later, a friend of mine who was also a castmate of mine uh, on a tour that I did had come out with a Facebook posting of an actual PDF of the entire Michael Wolf book, Fire and Fury. And uh, I thought, great. You know, I'll, you know, I could uh, save this and, and, you know, maybe make an audition out of it. Well, today was the day for that. So I, I, I decided I, uh, 
I wanted to, you know, keep in the subject since we did that little Trump poetry thing. Um, I thought I'd keep in the in the uh, subject of Trump, if that's not too nauseating. But uh, I thought I would uh, read uh, chapter one. Chapter one is a little long. Uh, I read about nine-tenths of it, and I think I'll probably read more of it in the future, maybe even next week. I'm not sure yet. But um, this is a book by Michael Wolff. Uh, this is called Fire and Fury. And I'm, I'm going to tell you what I always tell you on these other ones. There's a bit of me reading about Michael Wolff, the author, uh, from Wikipedia. So without further ado, Fire and Fury by Michael Wolff. Michael Wolff is an American author, essayist, journalist, and a columnist and contributor to USA Today, The Hollywood Reporter, and the UK edition of GQ. He has received two National Magazine Awards, a Mirror Award, and has authored seven books, including Burn Rate, about his own dot-com company, and The Man Who Owns the News, a biography of Rupert Murdoch. He co-founded the news aggregation website Newser and is a former editor of Adweek. In January 2018, Wolf's book Fire and Fury, Inside the Trump White House, was published containing unflattering descriptions of behavior by U.S. President Donald Trump, chaotic interactions among the White House senior staff, and derogatory comments about the Trump family by former White House chief strategist Steve Bannon. After being released on January 5th, the book quickly became a New York Times number one bestseller. Chapter 1. Election Day On the afternoon of November 8, 2016, Kellyanne Conway, Donald Trump's campaign manager and a central, indeed, starring personality of Trump world, settled into her glass office at Trump Tower. Right up until the last weeks of the race, the Trump campaign headquarters had remained a listless place. All that seemed to distinguish it from a corporate back office were a few posters with right-wing slogans. Conway now was in a remarkably buoyant mood, considering she was about to experience a resounding, if not cataclysmic, defeat. Donald Trump would lose the election, of this she was sure, but he would quite possibly hold the defeat to under six points. That was a substantial victory. As for the looming defeat itself, she shrugged it off. It was Reince Priebus's fault, not hers. She had spent a good part of the day calling friends and allies in the political world and blaming Priebus. Now, she briefed some of the television producers and anchors with whom she'd built strong relationships and with whom, actively interviewing in the last few weeks, she was hoping to land a permanent on-air job after the election. She carefully courted many of them since joining the Trump campaign in mid-August and becoming the campaign's reliably combative voice and, with her spasmodic smiles and strange combination of and imperturbability, a telegenic face. Beyond all of the other horrible blunders of the campaign, the real problem, she said, was the devil they couldn't control. The Republican National Committee, which was run by Priebus, his sidekick, 32-year-old Katie Walsh, 
and their flack Sean Spicer instead of being and their flack Sean Spicer. Instead of being all in, the RNC, ultimately the tool of the Republican establishment, had been hedging its bets ever since Trump won the nomination in early summer. When Trump needed the push, the push just wasn't there. That was the first part of Conway's spin. The other part was that despite everything, the campaign had really clawed its way back from the abyss. A severely undersourced team with, practically speaking, the worst candidate in modern political history. Conway offered either an eye-rolling pantomime whenever Trump's name was mentioned, or a dead stare, had actually done extraordinarily well. Conway, who had never been involved in a national campaign, and who, before Trump, ran a small-time, down-ballot polling firm, understood full well that, post-campaign, she would now be one of the leading conservative voices on cable news. In fact, one of the Trump campaign pollsters, John McLaughlin, had begun to suggest within the past week or so, that some key state numbers, heretofore dismal, might actually be changing to Trump's advantage. But neither Conway nor Trump himself, nor his son-in-law Jared Kushner, the effective head of the campaign, or the designated family mentor of it, wavered in their certainty. Their unexpected adventure would soon be over. Only Steve Bannon, in his odd man view, insisted the numbers would break in their favor. But this being Bannon's view, Crazy Steve, it was quite the opposite of being a reassuring one. Almost everybody in the campaign, still an extremely small outfit, thought of themselves as a clear-eyed team, as realistic about their prospects as perhaps any in politics. The unspoken agreement among them, not only would Donald Trump not be president, he should probably not be. Conveniently, the former conviction meant nobody had to deal with the latter issue. As the campaign came to an end, Trump himself was sanguine. He had survived the release of the Billy Bush tape when, in the uproar that followed, the RNC had had the gall to pressure him to quit the race. FBI Director James Comey, having bizarrely hung Hillary out to dry by saying he was reopening the investigation into her emails 11 days before the election, had helped avert a total Clinton landslide. I can be the most famous man in the world, Trump told his on-again, off-again side, Sam Nunberg, at the outset of the campaign. But do you want to be president? Nunberg asked, a qualitatively different question than the usual existential candidate test. Why do you want to be president? Nunberg did not get an answer. The point was, there didn't need to be an answer because he wasn't going to be president. Trump's longtime friend, Roger Ailes, liked to say, if you wanted a career in television, then run for president. Now, president, encouraged by Ailes, was floating rumors about a Trump network. It was a great future. He would come out of this campaign, Trump assured Ailes, with a far more powerful brand and untold opportunities. This is bigger than I ever dreamed of, he told Ailes in a conversation 
a week before the election. I don't think about losing because it isn't losing. We've totally won. What's more, he was already laying down his public response to losing the election. It was stolen. Donald Trump and his tiny band of campaign warriors were ready to lose with fire and fury. They were not ready to win. In politics, somebody has to lose, but invariably, everybody thinks they can win. And you probably can't win unless you believe that you will win, except in the Trump campaign. The motif for Trump about his own campaign was how crappy it was and how everybody involved in it was a loser. He was equally convinced that the Clinton people were brilliant winners. They've got the best and we've got the worst, he frequently said. Time spent with Trump on the campaign plane was often an epic dissing experience. Everybody around him was an idiot. Corey Lewandowski, who served as Trump's first more or less official campaign manager, was often berated by the candidate. For months, Trump called him the worst, and in June 2016, he was finally fired. Ever after, Trump proclaimed his campaign doomed without Lewandowski. We're all losers, he would say. All our guys are terrible. Nobody knows what they're doing. Wish Corey was back. Trump quickly soured on his second campaign manager, Paul Manafort, as well. By August, trailing Clinton by 12 to 17 points and facing a daily firestorm of eviscerating press, Trump couldn't conjure even a far-fetched scenario for achieving an electoral victory. At this dire moment, Trump, in some essential sense, sold his losing campaign. The right-wing billionaire Bob Mercer, a Ted Cruz backer, had shifted his support to Trump with a $5 million infusion. Believing the campaign was cratering, Mercer and his daughter, Rebecca, took a helicopter from their Long Island estate out to a scheduled fundraiser, with other potential donors bailing by the second at New York Jets owner and Johnson & Johnson heir Woody Johnson's summer house in the Hamptons. Trump had no real relationship with either father or daughter. He'd had only a few conversations with Bob Mercer, who mostly talked in monosyllables. Rebecca Mercer's entire history with Trump consisted of a selfie taken with him at Trump Tower. But when the Mercers presented their plan to take over the campaign and install their lieutenants, Steve Bannon and Kellyanne Conway, Trump didn't resist. He only expressed vast incomprehension about why anyone would want to do that. This thing, he told the Mercers, is so fucked up. By every meaningful indicator, something greater than even a sense of doom shadowed what Steve Bannon called the Broke Dick campaign, a sense of structural impossibility. The candidate who billed himself as a billionaire ten times over refused even to invest his own money in it. Bannon told Jared Kushner, who, when Bannon signed on to the campaign, had been off with his wife on a holiday in Croatia with Trump enemy David Geffen, that after the first debate in September, they would need an additional $50 million to cover them until Election Day. No way he'll get $50 million unless we can guarantee him victory, said a clear-eyed Kushner. $25 million, prodded Bannon. If we can say victory is more than likely. In the end, 
The best Trump would do is loan the campaign $10 million, provided he got it back as soon as they could raise other money. Steve Mnuchin, then the campaign's finance chairman, came to collect the loan with the wire instructions ready to go, so Trump couldn't conveniently forget to send the money. There was, in fact, no real campaign because there was no real organization, or at best, only a uniquely dysfunctional one. Roger Stone, the early de facto campaign manager, quit or was fired by Trump, with each man publicly claiming he had slapped down the other. Sam Nunberg, a Trump aide who had worked for Stone, was noisily ousted by Lewandowski, and then Trump exponentially increased the public dirty clothes washing by suing Nunberg. Lewandowski and Hope Hicks, the PR aide put on the campaign by Ivanka Trump, had an affair that ended in a public fight on the street, an incident cited by Nunberg in his response to Trump's suit. The campaign, on its face, was not designed to win anything. Even as Trump eliminated the 16 other Republican candidates, however far-fetched that might have seemed, it did not make the ultimate goal of winning the presidency any less preposterous. And if, during the fall, winning seemed slightly more plausible, that evaporated with the Billy Bush affair. I'm automatically attracted to beautiful, I just start kissing them, Trump told the NBC host Billy Bush on an open mic amid the ongoing national debate about sexual harassment. It's like a magnet. Just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the pussy. You can do anything. It was an operatic unraveling. So mortifying was this development that when Rents Priebus, the RNC head, was called to New York from Washington for an emergency meeting at Trump Tower, he couldn't bring himself to leave Penn Station. It took two hours for the Trump team to coax him across town. Bro, said a desperate Bannon, cajoling Priebus on the phone. I may never see you again after today, but you gotta come to this building and you gotta walk through the front door. The silver lining of Melania Trump had to endure after the Billy Bush tape was that now there was no way her husband could become president. Donald Trump's marriage was perplexing to almost everybody around him. Or it was, anyway, for those without private jets and many homes. He and Melania spent relatively little time together. They could go days at a time without contact, even when they were both in Trump Tower. Often, she did not know where he was, or take much notice of that fact. Her husband moved between residences as he would move between rooms. Along with knowing little about his whereabouts, she knew little about his business, and took, at best, modest interest in it. An absentee father for his first four children, Trump was even more absent for his fifth, Baron, his son with Melania. Now, on his third marriage, he told friends he thought he had finally perfected the art. Live and let live. Do your own thing. He was a notorious womanizer, and during the campaign became possibly the world's most famous masher. While nobody would ever say Trump was sensitive when it came to women, he had many views about how to get along with them, including a theory he discussed with friends about how the more years between an older man and a younger woman, the less the younger woman took an older man's cheating personally. 
Still, the notion that this was a marriage in name only was far from true. He spoke of Melania frequently when she wasn't there. He admired her looks, often awkwardly for her, in the presence of others. She was, he told people proudly and without irony, a trophy wife. And while he may not have quite shared his life with her, he gladly shared the spoils of it. A happy wife is a happy life, he said, echoing a popular rich man truism. He also sought Melania's approval. He sought the approval of all women around him who were wise to give it. In 2014, when he first seriously began to consider running for president, Melania was one of the few who thought it was possible he could win. It was a punchline for his daughter Ivanka, who had carefully distanced herself from the campaign. With a never-too-hidden distaste for her stepmother, Ivanka would say to friends, all you have to know about Melania is that she thinks if he runs, he'll certainly win. But the prospect of her husband's actually becoming president was, for Melania, a horrifying one. She believed it would destroy her carefully sheltered life, one sheltered not inconsiderably from the extended Trump family, which was almost entirely focused on her young son. Don't put the cart before the horse, her amused husband said, even as he spent every day on the campaign trail, dominating the news, but her terror and torment mounted. There was a whisper campaign about her, cruel and comical in its insinuations, going on in Manhattan, which friends told her about. Her modeling career was under close scrutiny. In Slovenia, where she grew up, a celebrity magazine, Susie, put the rumors about her into print after Trump got the nomination. Then, with a sickening taste of what might be ahead, the Daily Mail blew the story across the world. The New York Post got its hands on outtakes from a nude photo shoot that Melania had done early in her modeling career, a leak that everybody other than Melania assumed could be traced back to Trump himself. Inconsolable, she confronted her husband. Is this the future? She told him she wouldn't be able to take it. Trump responded in this fashion. We'll sue, and set her up with lawyers who successfully did just that. But he was very contrite, too. Just a little longer, he told her. It would all be over in November. He offered his wife a solemn guarantee. There was simply no way he would win. And even for a chronically, he would say helplessly, unfaithful husband, this was one promise to his wife that he seemed sure to keep. And of course, that was uh, most of chapter one uh, from Fire and Fury by Michael Wolff. I hope you liked that as much as I did. So that should just about do it for this episode. If you enjoyed hearing from the books I read today, make sure to visit audible.com for more books and short stories that I, as well as many other voice actors, have narrated. Be sure to email me at tomreadyourstory at yahoo.com to send in your written material for me to perform, or if you have specific questions about getting into the voiceover biz. As always, thanks to Anchor.fm for this wonderful chance at having a continuing podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Hope you decide to come back soon. Have a great rest of your day, 
and take care. For more information on Tom's availability for your e-learning, commercial, audiobook, or video project, visit his website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tom Reads Your Story.